Today's podcast is brought to you by Eggshell Light Company. For over 45 years, Eggshell Light Company has been the go-to specialty shop handling the lighting needs for all that grace the shores of beautiful Hawaii. Combining the artistic methods of the theater with the speed and efficiency of the musical touring industry, they have pioneered event lighting throughout the Hawaiian Islands. They specialize in supply of top-shelf equipment and designers for broadcast concerts, corporate, and special events. From the smallest weddings to televised concerts and the largest corporate clients, they know this is your most important event. It is their goal to make sure you feel that way. Aloha from Eggshell Light Company. Welcome everyone to another episode of LD at Large podcast. My name is Chris Lose. I am the designer relations developer at Ayrton Lighting, as well as columnist for PLSN Magazine, LD at Large. I am here today with my very good longtime friend, Steve Cohen, production designer with uh, such clients that you all know of as Billy Joel, Van Halen, Don Henley, such legendary acts. Thank you so much for making the time to sit and chat with me today, Steve. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Chris. Your, uh, your studio looks beautiful. I see you're down at, uh, at the Florida home. Yep. Yep. We're down in Miami, quarantined in Miami. We got... Uh... We, we spend the winters down here and uh, the uh, quarantine came down and we uh, decided that we'd stay warm instead of coming up to the Northeast and freezing through this, uh, whatever this is. I believe the term is called snowbird. You, you, hide, you hide down there in the, the winter and then you go yeah. back up in the, in the summer. I guess it's a little, you know, being called a snowbird, it's like, sounds a little disparaging, like I'm one of those people that, you know, swoops in and takes advantage and whatever. <laughs> I mean, listen, we, you know, in our business where we travel all over the country and all over the world, you know, there are times I'm down here in the summertime because I may be doing a couple of dates in the South or I might be doing something locally down here in Miami. Uh, and there are times that I'm up in New York you know, to do shows at the garden or wherever in New York uh, in the, in the uh, wintertime. So it's not really a snowbird, but I will say that in this particular run, yeah, we're down here. We were down here to get, come down here in the warm and yeah. you know, go back up. I mean, we were, when we were doing these runs, the Billy Joel shows at Madison Square Garden, you know, it's uh, once a month, I'd have to go up to New York anyway, because we do a show once a month. So yeah, we're more like caged birds these days where this is not normal for us to be sitting at home this long yeah, you know, I was, I was talking to someone about that today and saying that, you know, I'm very fortunate at this point in my life and my career and journey, whatever you want to call it, that uh, my schedule is really uh, comfortable for me. But what had happened was that, you know, I found that there were red letter moments in a month that like I'd be getting ready to go do something and say, well, I have six days or seven days at home before I have to get on a plane and go do a gig, which is going to take a week. And then, you know, there were these markers in time every month, even though I felt like I wasn't really busy, like I wasn't really working. You know, I don't work like I used to where, you know, you'd be designing one show, programming another show in rehearsals with another show. You know, it's really, you know, narrowed down to a couple of big artists and a couple of television projects, but it has been pretty weird that, you know, I look at my calendar and like, I was supposed to gig tonight. Like last Saturday, we were supposed to be in Charlotte doing a stadium show. And it's like, the day came and went and I didn't go anywhere. So it's, uh, it's disorienting in that, you know, it, it, I don't have that purpose. I don't have, I don't have a flow. And, you know, at, at this point in my life, the rhythm of my life has become very comfortable and very comforting. So you know, I'm very fortunate. You know, I, I start out this thing by saying that I, you know, I have to pinch myself and, and, and be incredibly grateful that, you know, in this situation where there is so much devastation in our industry and in the world at large for incomes, um, you know, I'm, I'm in a situation where I'm okay. I mean, I got a roof over my head. Mm -hmm. I, I, I stuck a couple of $20 bills under the mattress over the years. So, you know, I have the ability to, to ride this out for a particular time. Obviously it's not independent, you know, I can't ride it out forever. And if it was to go on forever, we all have much bigger problems, but it has made me reflect on my purpose and, you know, what am I really here for? And, and do I define, have I defined my life 
in my career or is my life bigger? Is there, is there more to me than just my gig and more to me than just my career? And I'll tell you, it's, uh, it's a pretty interesting journey to, to, to look inward. Um, my, uh, my father is dealing with the same thing right now. He did 26 years at the same job and then it came time to, for him to be retired and he quickly realized that without that immediate purpose, he wasn't going to last very long. So he went, he went back to semi-retirement and he went into, he took, he's basically started doing the same thing he used to do for the government, but he does it freelance now. And that just a reason to get up in the morning, something to go do something to really keep a man's brain functioning and moving forward. It, it, it helps us a lot. Brain's a muscle, man. You got to exercise it. It just, you know, it just needs to, you know, you need to do it. And, you know, I think that there's a, there, that, Everything happens for a reason in my world, and I believe that all of this is for a bigger purpose. So, you know, I'm gonna I'm gonna ride it out the best I can, showing up, being as helpful to people as I can, and you know, not going into that spiral of depression and worry and fear, and you know, mm-hmm. what's gonna happen, and what if it doesn't come back, and when it comes back, it's not gonna be as big, and you know, all of that stuff is pointless. They're pointless exercises. In, I mean, there's valid, they're valid questions, but for me, they're pointless exercises because they take energy away from just day-to-day shit, which is, you know, waking up, putting one foot in front of the other, being mm-hmm. a good uh, spouse, being a good person, being a good friend, being a good brother, all that shit. And, and I think that my, my life today is a reflection of that uh, more than anything else. I'm pretty okay, uh, as okay as I can be. Um, That's great. You seem to be very fortunate because you have a, a handful of very loyal clients. Can you talk a little bit about how you kind of work to build that level of loyalty? Well, you know, I'm very fortunate. Um, I've, also, I've also been around a while. You know, I, I, my career had waves that, you know, put me in places where a lot of these artists were either on the way up or were well into their upward arc but hadn't plateaued yet. Uh, and, and, you know, one thing led to another, led to another. You know, my relationship with Billy um, started in 1974, and I basically bought my way into that thing. Billy was, was headlining, <laughs> well, Billy was headlining colleges and opening act. It was an opening act for a bunch of other artists. And I was 21 years old or 20, 21 years old. And I had been working in a club in LA and I had a crazy partner at the time who thought that I did lights pretty good at this club. And he was a, he was a, a an aluminum siding salesman. I think he was 22. Uh, so he was a bullshit artist, basically. And we had met a couple of guys who had, at that point, they were in the air conditioning uh, construction business in New York. And they were picking up little companies that they could pick up cheap. And they bought this little company called Century Strand, which had a little office out in the, near the airport. And Century Strand used to make basically lighting consoles. And mm-hmm. it was like, oh, they knew nothing about the lighting business. And of course, I pretended to know everything about the lighting business. And we're talking 1974. There wasn't a hell of a lot to know. Right. And I stumbled into a group of guys, a guy named George Van Buren, who invented the SCR dimmer, a guy named Rocky Paulson, who was one of the original Disney riggers. And we all hung out and, dare I say, smoked a lot of pot together and, you know, came up with this idea about building a lighting system that could uh, self-support itself. Um, Because I was really inspired by the first truss I'd ever seen, first box truss I ever saw, which was something that uh, Bill McManus had built for Jethro Tull. And I remember going to that concert going, I I think that this is what I want to do. It was the first time I'd ever seen lighting suspended over an artist. So we put together this little operation and we started to build this, I think we raised, I don't know, $20,000. And then myself and uh, my, my friend, my partner, we, the, uh, Billboard magazine used to publish the names of all the names and phone numbers of all the managers uh, that would take an ad out in Billboard. And they would do this uh, issue like once a year or twice a year with a whole contact sheet in the back. So we sat in the apartment in the San Fernando Valley and cold called every single manager say, Hey, we own this lighting company and we love your band and we want to go out on the road and, and, you know, do lights for you guys. And we, we ended up taking a couple of interviews. And then I came home one afternoon after meeting with 
Billy Joel's manager and sound engineer at the time. And my partner, Scott, had come back after meeting with Ruffalo, the, the manager for Earth, Wind & Fire. And he walked in and said, I got Earth, Wind & Fire. And I said, I got Billy Joel. So we had one lighting system and two tours. And they were going out at the same time. So uh, I, and, and I was pissed because I had to do Billy Joel. Like, I was an Earth, Wind & Fire fan. You know, I was a West Coast guy. I was into the Eagles. I was into Linda Ronstadt. I was into prog rock. I was into all that shit. But a singer-songwriter from New York didn't, do, didn't raise my heartbeat one, one minute, you know? And I literally hated the song Piano Man, so, uh, which I think was, had just come out. So I ended up having to take this lighting system out. And what I ended up doing was there was a company called Four Star, not Four Wall, Four Star Lighting on Hollywood Boulevard, and they rented gear. So I rented three genies, and the genie hoists came in these blue coffins, these blue boxes. There was a lot of room on either side of where the genie would set in. So I rented enough lights that I could fit into these boxes. And I would fill the boxes. I filled the boxes with cable and Lico's and park hands. And I went on the road with Billy Joel. And I, and I ended up, I tell this story all the time, which is uh, we did the first show in Kansas City. I did some rehearsals and whatnot. Did the first show in Kansas City. And the sound engineer came and picked me up and brought me back to... Um, the hotel, he came up and he said, Billy wants to see you. So I'm thinking I'm getting fired, right? So I get in the car, I drive back to the hotel. It's a holiday inn, one of those holiday inns that courtyards, you know, around the swimming pool. And they're sitting around drinking black Russians and smoking cigarettes. And Billy says to me, he goes, you know, Steve, we're sitting around here talking and it was the same set list. It's the same band. Uh, it's the same sound but the audience reaction was completely different. And we got applause in places we'd never gotten before. And it was a much bigger show. So by process of elimination, we figured the only change was the lights. So you can stick around. And that was how the relationship started. And, and, wow. I, and I, ended up, I ended up doing the end of that tour. And I was a one man guy, you know, set it up and tear it down and all that stuff. I ended up doing that tour and then his, accountant didn't pay us the last week. And I think I will tell you, I think we charged $1,250 a week for me and a lighting system. All in. All in. And we were paycheck to paycheck. And if they didn't pay me the 1250, like at the end of the tour, I think that's what, that's what my profit would have been. So we took them to small claims court. <laughs> we took them to small claims court for $1,250. <laughs> So six months later, they're rehearsing and they're getting ready to go out on the road. And I'm still friends with them. I'm hanging out with Brian Ruggles, who's the sound engineer. And, you know, I'm in touch with Billy and, you know, all that. And then all of a sudden, radio silence. And I'm like, what the fuck? So I, they were rehearsing at SIR in, in Hollywood. And I was talking to my buddy, Brian. He says, come down. You got to hear from Billy. What's going on? So I walk up and Billy's like sheepish. And he goes, well, my wife, who's the business manager, uh, told me I can't hire you because you sued me. And I said, sued you? You didn't pay me. <laughs> and he goes, well, I, I, you know, I, I don't know what I can tell you, but she's, you know, it's Elizabeth and I can't do it. So I said, okay, fine. Crestfallen, trying to get another band. And then they went to, they went out on the, they went to rehearsals, went on the road and opening night, or I think in rehearsals, they were in Salt Lake City. And I get this phone call at like three o'clock in the morning and it's Billy Jim McNeil, the promoter from Salt Lake City, and Brian, the sound engineer, and they are out of their freaking minds. And all they're telling me over the phone at three in the morning is like, this show sucks without you. We gotta have you. You gotta sell your company though, because we can't hire your company. And I, I immediately went, sure, no problem. Hung up the phone, got rid of the company, and I went on the road with Billy. And, and the rest is, you know, the rest is history. I moved to New York and that's how the relationship started. So uh, the origin of all of that and the relevance in is that, you know, we were doing colleges and we were doing field houses and some theaters and, but, and then opening up for stuff. So, you know, the Billy Joel that everybody knows now, listen, in those days we were, you know, we were lucky if we could sell out 1500 seats, but we were, we were doing something and, and I learned, I learned a lot of important lessons. I learned, I learned a work ethic from him 
Uh, and his work ethic was always show up, do the best you can, admit when you fuck up, and if you make a mistake, fix it. And what, you know, and he, he, I remember us having a conversation about that very specifically. And he said, as long as you do that with me, we're going to be fine. Well, that's what, what I did with him. And I respected him so much. You know, we were only five years apart, but he was like my older brother. And I, mm -hmm. and I respected him so much that he gave me the latitude. Because, you know, you got you to gotta remember at that time, I didn't know what the hell I was doing, nor did I think I had much value. You know, I, I really thought that what we were doing was kind of like this flavor of the month circus performance that was going to get really boring to people real fast. And, mm -hmm. you know, had no belief that there was any real craftsmanship or real artistry in what I was doing. I just, I love music and I love painting pictures with light and I had some pretty good timing and, you know, who's going to pay for that after a while, they're going to realize, well, okay, let's move on. You know, I had no, no understanding that this was a future of, of a career. Um, but I had that work ethic. I honed that work ethic and learned a little bit of humility. And it's funny about guys that are incredibly successful and incredibly talented and incredibly, you know, on the surface, huge egos. Because really at the end of the day, they're artists that are just as insecure as me. You know, and they're yeah, I find that a lot. A lot of people don't realize that they're they're people too, and they're just as nervous about their show as we are about ours. And sometimes even more than we are, because they've got the weight of all of that on their shoulders, mm -hmm. plus press, plus publicity. And you put yourself out there, you know, you're you're you put yourself out there. You have you know the possibility of getting whacked, uh, and it's painful. It's really painful. You know, you you know, you sit down and work on something, and somebody doesn't like it. It hurts. Yeah. You know, and, and part of the creative process for me has being able to distance myself from my emotional attachment to the work, because if I'm, you know, for years, it would kill me. You didn't like what I did, you know, cause I spent all this time, you know, it's so hard to give birth to these ideas uh, that when you give birth to them, it's like, you better love my kid. Uh, and, and that's not always the case. So I think learning you know, I've always been enamored by musicians. I've always uh, been an admirer of their ability to just sit down and sing and play. How can you do that? How can you chew gum and walk at the same time? I mean, just the simple craftsmanship of a, of a singer songwriter being able to sit down and play and sing. But I have never walked into a room with any of these guys, not feeling like I didn't, you know, feeling like I didn't belong in that room mm -hmm. because there's something about my belief that I'm working as hard as I can Yep. and the work and that alone is my price of admission. Yeah. You're a good worker. That's what we should all strive to be. We should all strive to be good at our jobs. That's all. Be the best bus driver you can. So, yeah. so I think, you know, if I thought about it, yes, were there times when I sat in a dressing room with Mariah Carey over the three or four different iterations of me working with her, that I wasn't intimidated. No, I was completely intimidated, but I was intimidated not by Mariah Carey so much as by the aura surrounding Mariah Carey. Because mm -hmm. I remembered Mariah in the very beginning when she was in her 20s and I did the first tour with her and we sat in the living room with her and Tommy Mottola and we did the set list together and she was, she was, she was, you know, she was a singer who couldn't believe that this was happening to her. So, you know, fast forward, you know, 20 years later, I'm in Vegas with her and there is a, there is a, there's a relationship there because she may not say she remembers it, but I, she looks me in the eye. I look her in the eye and she knows that, that we were both there together, you know, many, many years before. So my career throughout my life, you know, the Eagles is another example about this. I, you know, you and I both were, you know, we have, you know, history with all those guys. And I was lucky enough to work with Don Henley. I didn't get to, not the, not the rest. Yeah. I mean, Don and I, you know, I started working with Don. Craig Fruin uh, brought me in like the first Don Henley tour, uh, building the, per the first solo one, building the perfect beast. And Henley and I had a immediate short, uh, immediate, um, code language where we understood one another and he was out there doing a solo thing. It wasn't the Eagles and we had a ball, 
you know, when the Eagles reformed, it was a little bit of a different thing because, you know, Don had been out doing big successful tours with his band and his production and his sound guy and his lighting guy. You know, now you come back together with his partner, Glenn, who, you know, in most, the most understanding was that, you know, it was Glenn's band, you know, Glenn made sure that, you know, he controlled all of that stuff. So I think that there was this dynamic that changed between, you know, Don and me because of his relationship with Glenn. And I ended up, funnily enough, only doing one Eagles tour when Glenn was alive. I was brought to the dance a couple of times, but never, but I never, I never did it again until sad he passed away and then the eagles reformed and don called me and and you know we were back to the races and this new eagles tour is one of without a doubt one of my most proud pieces of work because you know i'm talking i'm i'm dealing with guys that are detailed beyond extreme and and demand perfection demand perfection my relationship, but, but going back to the thing about Mariah, my relationship with Don predates that. Right. So I'm one of the people when I was brought into this thing where he didn't have to worry about it. He didn't have to explain to me what he wanted. He, we had a trust where mm -hmm. he knew that I was not going to, that I was going to do high quality, but I was also going to do whatever he wanted to do. And that I was the kind of person that if he didn't like it, didn't matter to me. Like, okay, I'll change it, you know? Right. Um, but after the first couple of, you know, first meeting with renderings, he was like, okay. And then I think he sat down when I was programming. I mean, it's notorious about Henley and the Eagles used to sit down with Peter Morris and, and spend all that night working with them and then rehearse during the day. Like he came in, saw a couple of songs, looked at me and went, Oh yeah, right. It's you. Okay. Bye. And then left. So, uh, that's a great Nate, feeling. Our, our buddy Nate was, was there. I mean, you know, that's right. He can attest to that. Boy, he did a great fucking job on that. But that's, you know, that's, a, that's an, another conversation. But I feel like, like that helped me as well in a lot of my, a lot of my progression is that I, would, I was known as a person who could deal with people with large egos and a lot of demand for perfectionism. And you, you really have to put yourself out there and you have to present what you believe to be perfection, but also be willing to accept really tough criticism a lot of my artists they don't know what they want yeah. but boy they know exactly when they see something they don't like yeah which which to me look you know as a designer i kind of i i get i, I get a little annoyed at that because you know i don't make a comment on whether or not those chord changes work <laughs> you know, i don't make a comment on whether or not i think that the keyboard part is the wrong keyboard part and you should try it you know I, I'm not well versed in that art when it comes to composition and timing and atmosphere and how I want to uh, interpret something visually with the exception of video content, because that's that everybody's a video director. So that's a little right. bit different. But when it comes to lighting and atmosphere and all that stuff, who are you? I mean, I, I can understand. I can understand why. What I do when someone makes a negative comment or, or gives me a note, more importantly, I know that the reason I'm getting that note is because I'm not successfully communicating what I want. Ooh, good one. It is my responsibility for you not to give me notes mm -hmm. because I know that I know how to drive. I know how to fly this airplane. I know how to drive this car. And if I can do this in a way where you, you know, I learned from an editor a very long time ago, a film editor who said, a good edit is one you never know happened. And I think that that's very much the case when you're doing lighting for music. If you're enhancing something to where you only, where it feels like it's a comfortable pair of shoes, then you've done, then you've done your job. You know, you, you've, you've made it, you've made it feel like um, it's an organic part of that musical experience. So there are times, there are times where you just can't win for losing. And there are artists that I have had encounters with that, you know, you want it blue, here it is blue. I don't want it blue. You want it red, here it is red. I don't want it red. You know, you can't please people like that. But, but I'd be lying if I said it didn't piss me off. Yes, yeah, so I've run into that a few times where I'm trying to give them what I think they want. They've expressed to me that that is what they want. I give it to them and then they're like, that is clearly not what we talked about. I'm like, that is that's absolutely exactly. what we talked about. Well, I mean, and listen, that's where choices come into play because, 
you know, I, I, I have made choices in my career to not work with people who I'm going to get myself in that kind of position because I'm never not going to give you, you know, I, I used to say this, you know, back in the nineties, Roy, Roy and I would get the same phone calls and Willie and I would get the same phone calls and Alan, you know, like there was, there would be seven or eight designers that, you know, if somebody was going out, they were going to call one of the, one of these five or six guys, Brickman. And mm -hmm. I've always said that you, you don't go to a Mercedes dealer, buy a Mercedes and then try and turn it into a BMW. If you wanted a BMW in the first place, you get a BMW. So, you know, if you're going to Roy Bennett, you're going to get backlit pods outside the box thinking, you know, and, and you're going to get that. If you come to me, you're going to get a little bit of a different, I don't know what you're going to, what you see, but you know, it's going to be different, <laughs> you know? So, so, uh, you know, I've always believed horses for courses, but I also think that that responsibility falls on the designer himself. You know, right. if, if I'm in a position where I have to take every gig, then pretty soon my, and I'm air quoting here, my artistic integrity will fall by the wayside because I'll just want to please. I'll just want to make everybody happy. And then I'll make decisions that don't, I'll make decisions that, that don't serve me, the project or the artist. So it's very hard. You know, it's, you know, greed is, I used to sit back and burn when Peter Morris would get this gig and Peter Morris would get this gig and Peter Morris would get this gig. And I was, why well, I was up for all of them. And I'd be like, no, you know, I'd see them unfold and go, no, I'm, there's a reason. There's a reason all these things happen. So, mm -hmm. you know, I mean, I'm not taking away from anybody who, from anybody, because I think there's, you know, Peter's a great example. I love Peter Morris. And I think he is, the, regardless of talent, he has got the toughest skin of any human being in this business. You can't mm -hmm. ruffle him. And I never understood how he could. Do that. <laughs> that's why, you know, that's why him and Barbara Streisand are a really good match, mm -hmm. you know, because there's nothing there, you know, that's why him and Michael Jackson were such a great, were such a great match. So one of the things that you just touched on that I, I find very profound is if you want to try and please everybody, you're going to end up pleasing nobody. Yeah. If you, if you just bow to every single whim and you're like, well, yeah, let's do that. Let's do that. Let's do that. Let's do that. Do that. Next thing you know, you're going to end up with a, a messy show. You got to be real careful about it. You're like, no, look, I know how to fly this pilot. I know how to pilot this plane. Let me pilot this plane and let's, and I want your input. Absolutely. But at the same time, we, we can't go on every single whim that you have. Well, look, you're right. It's but it's hard. It, you know, the work yeah. is hard. The work is hard. You know, sitting, you've been in a dark room many, many, many hours. You know what it's like, you know, that you can do something, you can write a verse and a chorus, and then you go to the bathroom and you play it back and you go, oh, that sucks. And you have to go do it again, just to please yourself, just to be able to do something that you feel comfortable with. So, it, it, you know, that's hard. If, you know, if I add the additional layer of having to please somebody else, other than another show director, other than somebody who sits out in the front of the house for a living, I think, I think it confuses me and it, and it takes away my, that place where I go, where the inspiration comes because I'm trying to please. I'm, there's, a, there's a great way I try and live my life, which is you know, show up and do the best I can and not be concerned about the outcome. Let the outcome happen however it's going to happen, not control the outcome. And I think in design, it's very much the same thing, that if I'm trying to control, if I'm trying to get you to love what I do, I'm never going to get you to love what I do because I'm not, I'm not going to know what is really true to me. So, mm -hmm. you know, it's a very esoteric way to look at this business or look at this stuff. But I'm at this point, I'm 65. I've been doing this for 45 years what, what's it all about? You know, what does it mean? And, and I've now, I now think looking back on all of the things that have gotten me here, that the things that I didn't think were important were, were very, very important. What I mean by that is that, you know, sitting, I have a great story of sitting with Michael. I did the first in first in sync. Uh, I did, I did in sync. And then I did the sort of the first big arena tour. They, they took off really fast. And, I was sitting in Michael Tate 
at Tate Towers and I was sitting with Michael and Michael would be really mad at me because I couldn't draw shit and he would like try, and this was the beginning of AutoCAD. So, you know, the beginning of using AutoCAD in our business. And, you know, he would sit me down to the, to the table and say, you're here, you're going to learn how to draw a rectangle and you do this, whatever. And I would, I would like, I couldn't be bothered and, or I didn't have the patience. Uh, I was a little snotty and, and, uh, <laughs> and we had, I had come up with this idea where I wanted to, um, I, and I had drawn the renderings, me and my partner at the time, Jim Day had drawn the renderings and we had this detachable thrust that would roll down the center of the arena and be on a scissor lift that the guys could come out and do. And Michael said, no problem, no problem. And I was gone and then I came back and then I was gone and we're like two weeks before ready to ship. And I'm sitting at Michael's desk and he's got a stack of Granger catalogs. You know what Granger catalogs, right? Catalogs for, for parts, the hydraulic parts and all that stuff. And I said, what are you doing? He says, well, I'm trying to figure out how to do this rolling lift. I said, we ship in two weeks. It's something that the guys are gonna be on. Are you crazy? And he looked at me and he said, it'll all happen when it's supposed to happen in Michael Tate's you know, <clears throat> typical way. And though I think a lot of that was Michael Tate's bullshit, um, it all happened. <laughs> And it all happened exactly how it was supposed to happen because his inspiration needed to happen when it happened. Branton said this to me a long time ago. He goes by the NASA school of thought, which is you keep working on the problem until, until one, until you hit the firing button. Like you can always come up with better solutions up until the moment that house lights out or you know, the, the logo goes on HBO and you start doing that live show. And I, and I think that that, I think being in that place where that inspiration lives is, that's the hardest thing for me to do, which is really letting go and, and being open to all of that stuff. So anyway, I don't know. We, we almost need that. We need that time limit. Otherwise we'll just keep working on it over and over and over again. Yeah. It's like a painting. We'll just keep painting until until we realize, oh, I've, I've overpainted this. I should have should have stopped an hour ago. Yeah. Well, it's, it's tough for us to know when when the product is complete. Yeah, I mean that's you know that great line from Six Degrees of Separation where they're talking about the art students and the first first graders are you know finger painters and the fourth graders are all trees, but at the third graders are all matisses. The you know they do these beautiful splashes of color. The key is taking the brush away from them. You mm -hmm. know. And, yep. and listen, being a successful um, in-demand designer, um, part of the, you know, and I'm talking to anybody who is that, not necessarily me, but you or anybody else, is really knowing that part of knowing when you're done, both in the mm -hmm. design process and in the execution process. And that's, uh, it's, an intu it's an intuitive thing. So you've had Billy as a client for 40 45 years? Yeah, what, 74. So what is that, 46 years? Yeah, yeah so you've had to redesign several songs many, many times over. Yeah, How do you decide which one, like, which piano man version was the best and which one, is it always the most current is the best one or is it, you know, did you, did you just have well, to change I, it down for the new tour? Look, I think, I, you know, it's, if we want to get granular about it, you take a song like Angry Young Man, there are 197 okay. cues in it. You got to hit every single one of those every time. What they look like is different based on the gear, the layout, the design of the rig, where, you know, uh, uh, what instruments you're using. Uh, but at the end of the day, you know, if I don't hit those cues where they've been like burned into me from the first moment I heard that song, I'll feel like I'm, like I'm you know, not doing my job. Um, you know, I think, you know, I, I say this about Billy all the time is that I can sit down at every tour and say, I'm going to do this one completely different. Then Scenes from an Italian Restaurant comes. And of course, I'm, you know, in, in green and orange because that's, you know, Italian to me. So it's just, it's, it's just, yeah, that's part. And part of that, uh, I think with Billy is a great, you know, you look at Billy, you go to see a Billy Joel show now. Those, those songs are played exactly the way they were when they were recorded. There ain't no long extended jazz versions of <laughs> what you are. It's like we play those songs exactly the way because 
he believes that 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 when he recorded them, that was the best version at the, that was the best version. That's what they were meant to sound like. So in a lot of ways with Billy, yes, you will. And, and I also think for the fan, for the Billy Joel fan throughout the years, there's a certain comfort in knowing that they're going to see they're going to see something that they're that they reference back to 10 years ago right. years i mean i got people who come to the show now who tell me that they you know oh we saw you in 1980 at, in cleveland and you know i remember when you did this and when you did that and, you know so it's uh, i try and keep that consistency that is one of the magical things about rock and roll as opposed to say say comedy people go to rock and roll to hear the same songs over and over and over again if you go to a Fleetwood Mac song and they don't do landslide, they're going to be upset. Yeah. But if you go to like, say a comedy show and they do the same bit over and over and over again, you're like, well, he's just doing the same old jokes. I, you know, it's funny. Uh, I think that the difference between music and any other art form, I, I mean, I, I find it hard to compare music to any other art form or emotional communication on the planet. The closest thing I can equate it to is the sense of smell. I don't know what that smells like to you, but I know what it smells like to me. Mm -hmm. And I think the, re the reaction that I have to a piece of music is, it, it could be similar to your reaction, but it ain't the same. And when I think that music is, is such an interpretive mechanism in my mind like it, it makes it creates emotions it makes me feel certain things it affects things that i don't even i'm not even aware of sometimes that the unbelievable privilege that i have that we have to be able to play in that sandbox to be able to put a layer of emotionality on top of a piece of music is a precious right. It is really very precious. And, and I think that in, not to talk about these kids today, but these kids today, I think a lot of that has been lost for expedience, for okay. bombast. And, I, and, I, and not that you can't be big, bold, and incredibly powerful. I mean, any, anybody who saw Pink Floyd in the late 70s, you know, at, indoors knows that you can be as eye-searing as anybody and powerful as, as, you know, the Beyonce cube. But, you know, there was an, there's an essence of uh, emotionality that gets lost sometimes in all the technology. So, so I think that, I think that understanding the, the privilege is really a great place to approach this job. Because, you know, I'm creating, you know, I think Nate talked about this really well on your last, on the podcast, which was, you know, we create uh, an, a, an ephemeral moment in people's lives. You go see a show, you see a song, you hear a song, you see the lighting, you see the look, you leave. Next time you hear that song on the radio, your mind replays that visual. And my gig is to, that's my gig. I give you that visual memory. Yeah, that's why we still do concerts and we don't just do radio. That's why it's not the same. You can't, it'll never be the same, the radio and live concerts. Uh, yeah, it's going to be interesting to, you know, when we come back from all of this, I was talking to uh, somebody today about, I, he was talking about, well, you know, there's, you know, it's all going to be on, you know, on a screen and you'll be able to watch it. And, you know, that's going to be the new way. And I said, well, it's still, it always has been. There's always television, con televised concerts and all that stuff. I said, yep. but the live tribal emotion of being in a room with a bunch of people singing along. Here's, here's, the, here's the, the thing I always um, am, am blown away when we play these gigs at Madison Square Garden with Billy. Because in one way, it's Billy Joel at Madison Square Garden. In, in another way, it's King Kong. It's like there is... There is an emotion that happens in that room where it's the perfect storm. It's Billy, it's New York, it's the garden, which is a great, which is probably the greatest. Nah, it's the greatest arena, you know, all of that. And I look around the room and I watch people in complete abandon singing at the top of their lungs. And you have all of these people that are average looking or better or worse from four in their forties and their thirties up to the seventies singing as loud as they can absolutely convinced in their minds that they're sounding just like Billy Joel. 
And that, that kind of tribal, that kind of tribal kind of camaraderie, you know, that is allowed to be in that space. You can't, you can't bottle that. You can't, you can't replicate that in a 2D environment. You can't replicate it in, in virtual. So we're going to come back and we're going to come back because we need to, you know, I mean, people need to need that communication. Yeah. That is the toughest part about right now is that when things get tough, we usually join together and we become more communal, the tougher things get. But now our, our coping mechanism is taken from us. So we, things are tough and we can't join together. Uh, I would imagine when it comes, when we're ready, we can, we'll be back in full force, but it'll take time. Yeah. And, and look, that's the cup is half empty. The cup is half full to me is if we had to do this 20 years ago, we'd go, we'd be going crazy. We wouldn't oh, yeah. we have the internet. We have the internet. We have zoom. We have FaceTime. Listen, I remember we played Russia in 85 or 87, whatever the year was. And Billy had, Billy's daughter was, wasn't with us at the beginning of it. Um, she was two or three and Billy carried around this little AT&T phone screen that we would have to set up in his room so he could have a, and there was an identical one at home. It was like the thing from 2001 where you could, we were staring into the screen. Like that's, that, that, that was, you know, how you communicated then. And you had to be rich and you had to have a staff, you know, it had to be a whole thing. Now I, I'm on Zoom. I have to say I'm on this format um, every single day, communicating, yeah. you know, depending on what the occasion for the meetings are. So, so my, my feeling is, is that we're weathering this period yeah. with some really remarkable tools and it's keeping me sane because it doesn't feel so dark. I don't feel yeah. so empty. I don't feel like I'm so isolated. That brings me up to one of the questions I really wanted to ask is, how do you feel technology has changed lighting? I'd imagine 45 years ago, if you wanted to sell somebody on a tour, you just had some, some napkins and some, some paper and uh, some sketches. Nowadays, I mean, you couldn't even show up with uh, some line drawings. I mean, you need a, a 3D previs suite to sell somebody on a tour. Is, is that helping or is that hindering you? Once again, I think it's an individual thing. I think I, think I can't be, there, there, are, there are people who require all of that and then there are people who don't require all of that. Um, <laughs> Good one. Uh, you know, like I showed up at the Eagles with three renderings. Okay. With Billy, I haven't put a drawing in front of him since I, I did Billy Elton. When we did the Billy and Elton thing, I did these, I did these renderings uh, when we were in Australia for the indoor show. And I showed them to him. He said, those are nice. Who are those for? You know, like <laughs> that, that's that. Um, you know, if I was to get a phone call for a, you name it, insert artist here, and they required a complete pre-visualization and all that stuff, once again, I'd have to think about who, what team I would want to put together to be able to execute that vision. I haven't been in that situation yet. I have to be honest. I have not been in that situation yet. And I don't know if I am going to be, but I think, look, I'm, I, I can throw a rendering together on 3D Studio Max. I have that skill. Um, okay. I, I can't draw a Vectorworks drawing to save my life, but I don't have to. I have a really talented collaborator who does drawings and, and loves when I give him sketches uh, in, th in 3D with very, very limited digital information. And he's like, don't do any more work because part of his joy is taking that vision and turning it into something that can actually be built. I'm fortunate, I have a really great collaborator that I do that with. So, you know, I think that if, if insert artist here calls me up and says, we wanna do this, and I think, oh, I really need to show them a complete visualization of the idea, you know, I could do it. I also think that that's a very limiting way because there is nothing that compares to an empty smoky room. And that to me, you can, you can make something as beautiful in 3D as possible. If you try and copy that in the real world, it's gonna look like a copied version of a 3D rendering. Mm -hmm. you know, there's, a lot of, there's a lot of gray areas that I like the idea that happen naturally and organically. That's, my, that's, that's the art I love. The, the, the rare occurrences of, of found art that really works better than created art. Look, you put a whole row of floor lights upstage. You're in computer, you're in the computer world, you do an up fan, a down fan, and a sweep through the eyes. You're in a real room, all of a sudden you throw them up on the rig and they refract against the metal. And all of a sudden you have 
you have a completely different architecture. Mm-hmm. You have an organic, you have a different feel completely. So you don't know that stuff until you get into a real world. Yeah, I would imagine you have to currently be monitoring. Was that a mistake or is that, is that right. beautiful? Right. <laughs> well, and you know, art is that wide and expansive and inclusive. There's none of that stuff that's a mistake. Yeah. You know? And I think, I think the biggest mistake is not, the biggest mistake is not, is not indulging yourself in those mistakes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, at the end of the day, our goal is to just make the lights look the way the music sounds. And if there's a mistake in there, then we need to roll with it. Well, you just put it in the perfect, you know, in very concise terms, make the lights look the way the music sounds, which is, you know, make something smell like that smells or make something taste like that tastes. Mm-hmm. It, is, it is a really amazing thing when, when you do that and the only the only reaction that is palpable to me that is that is that I can feel is when I'm looking around and seeing people's reactions on their faces because that'll give me a sense of their emotional connection to all of that. I take that with me. I like acknowledging the fact that I participated in that experience because mm-hmm. I think it's incredibly generous, and I think that in the bigger scale of things, that if I'm involved in an art form where I can create a positive emotional experience for for someone i'm going to get positive emotional experiences thrust upon me it's just a natural people call it karma i just believe that that's the way things work Mm -hmm. and i'm at a place now in my life where i don't know what the next chapter looks like i'm not retiring i love i love to work but i don't know i don't know what it's doing i'm i'm doing some things in television i'm doing some things in scripted television i'm doing some documentary work so like I'm telling stories in a little bit of a different manner, but you know, at the end of the day, I'm a lighting guy. And I'm at the, at the end of the day, I'm most comfortable sitting behind a console with you guys running it and programming <laughs> it. Um, and, and, and telling stories and mm-hmm. trying to convey an idea of what I think it should look like in metaphor. Like, yeah. you know, that's the thing about a, a, a computer, a computer generated, virtual reality, you know, walkthrough of a show takes away the metaphor to me, takes away the ability to expand and make it impressionistic, you know? So I don't know, old school. Yeah. Are you still a concert goer? Do you, uh, do you go for fun? I've never really been a concert goer. I stopped going to concerts when I started working in the business. Mm-hmm. And, and I don't know for years it was because I I'm a cipher and I, I can't keep myself from, trying to replicate something that I've seen. Like my whole creative life is, you know, replicating nature, replicating architecture, replicating all that stuff. So, Mm -hmm. you know, I go see a show. I mean, I've got, there are red letter shows in my career that I have been to throughout my life, but I'm not a real, I'm not a real regular concert goer. I don't feel comfortable at someone else's gig. (laughs) Like, you know, I get invited to dinner and, and, oh, Steve's here, you know? (laughs) Yeah. No, I guess I would, I would put myself in that, in the category of people, if I knew you were in the audience, I'd be like, oh man, I got to step it up because Steve Cohen's here tonight. Right. So which, yeah, I would. Uh... So, which is so absurd for me too. <laughs> I went to a U2 show years ago at the garden and um, Willie was there. And I think this year he had, I mean, he had a Polaroid. So he would take pictures of everybody who was a guest at front of house. You know, and on the, on the wall in his road case, because they used to have video and, and light. It was like outrageous. They had video control and lighting control out at front of the house. No one ever did that. No one, no one was allowed to do that. It killed too many people. <laughs> um, and there was Polaroids of everybody I knew. You'd wonder what order he would put your picture up. You know, it was pretty funny. It was, it was, uh, it was, it was great. He did some fucking amazing work, that guy. He he's, had he's, a body of work. Yeah. You know, so, and I mean, that's like, it's funny because you too, like I've, I've seen, I, I've seen multiple versions of, of, of his stuff. No, in, no, I don't go to a lot of, don't go to a lot of. In Detroit, one week, my wife and I went to a Kid Rock concert and a U2 concert at the same venue, different nights. And it was so interesting to see how you can have the full kitchen sink experience with Kid Rock. I mean, everything Rainbow chases, pyro, confetti, midgets, <laughs> clowns, 
clowns and you get the same, not the same, but the similar impact from going to see a, a, a U2 show where it's just the core art where you, it's the same image on the, on the screen for five minutes until you really get the feeling that he was trying to portray. And that's, it was really interesting to have the, the dichotomy there to, between the two. Yeah. Well, I mean, listen, you're, you're talking about the live experience, man. And that's, yeah, that's what we do. And that's, that's what is sorely missed when, when something like this happens. I mean, could you imagine if someone told you this, you know, last year that guess what your industry is going to be shut down for six months. No way. You'd say there's no way that that could possibly happen. There's no, there's no circumstance that would create that. Well, you know, when you least expect it. I, I thought that the Australian wildfires was going to be the defining tragedy of 2020. I thought that was, I, mean, I thought that was terrible. Yeah. Uh, I was wrong. Well, this is much well, worse. This is, you know, it's, it's much, it's much worse. And I go back to the beginning that I'm very grateful and very, very, very blessed to be able to ride this out. And I hope that, I hope everybody in our industry can, you know, I, it's interesting because I think many people in our industry are, have multi-talents. You know, if you're an electrician, you can get a gig as an electrician. If you're a graphics guy, you can get, you can get work in graphics. If you're, if you're a laborer in a shop, you can get work in a shop. So I think that for the interim, we have certain talents in our industry that if we need to pay the rent, there's going to be work for us to do. But it's only, you know, a stopgap until, you know, things, you know, heat up again. I mean, it's going to be really interesting to see how many companies are still in business in six months. Oh, yeah. You know, I'm hopelessly optimistic. So I'm hoping for it. I am too. I am yeah. too. And I, and I, and listen, I believe that there are secret stashes of support in, in various corners in our industry. You know, I've, I've seen what our friends have been doing to some of their employees, some of the owners we know, you know, I've seen, I've seen everybody step up. Nobody, this is too big of a, of a, of a business, but if it's a quarter of a million people throughout the entire industry that are in lighting and sets and video and production and rigging, and it's sustainable if everybody kind of pitches in and helps out. So I'm optimistic like you. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for taking the time, Steve. I really appreciate it. I, I feel like we could talk for many more hours, but uh, an hour is all I've got. Uh, I appreciate you taking the time. I know that uh, you're very very busy, man. I see that you're right in the middle of a painting there behind you. Yeah, I'm not busy, Chris. <laughs> I'm not busy. I am not busy at all. I, I mean, this is the busiest I've been in a couple of weeks. So I appreciate <laughs> you. And you know, I don't, I don't, I don't talk about this stuff a lot. And and um, I'm really comfortable that in talking to you about it because we share a common experience. We do the yeah. same gig, and um, and I think it's nice that there's an outlet for people to, you know, hear my experience because maybe they'll get something out of it and, and it'll, it'll help them. So that's really absolutely the end of the day. Thank you so much. Uh, definitely say hi to Curtis for me and uh, definitely say hello to Mickey for me. I appreciate it. Yeah. All cool. right.